This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. former deputy mayor for strategic policy initiatives for the city of New York, where he was responsible for spearheading a diverse collection of priority initiatives, including Democracy NYC, the Minority and Women-Owned Business Enterprise Program, the Mayor's Office of Workforce Development, and the Young Men's Initiative. Prior to joining former Mayor de Blasio's administration, he was an associate professor of urban planning at MIT, the author of Double Trouble, Black Mayors, Black Communities, and the Struggle for Deep Democracy. Uh, he's also written and worked extensively on community planning uh, for health, race, and community development, and the politics of black economic advancement. And frankly, he's one of the coolest people to talk to about any of these issues. Welcome, 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 Deputy Mayor Thompson. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So I loved your last segment, by the way, uh, on revolution, black love. That's great on Valentine's Day and every day. It is great every single day. I just need us, Deputy Mayor, to have uh, a more grounding, I think, a, a more firm grounding in what it means and how expansive our love for each other has been. Because uh, I'm one of those folks who believes that love is going to be one of the tools that we must have in order to move forward. And when I think about the work that we have, are doing on the Racial Justice Commission in New York City, it, for me, is also a form of love. Right. This idea that we must have a space where we can have honest understanding about how uh, there have been structures that have been erected that are designed to minimize our access to equality, to, to equitable access and opportunity uh, and recognizing that that too, you know, racial reconciliation, that is a love ethic. Uh, can you talk with us a bit about your hopes for this commission? Uh, last week we had Jennifer Jones Austin on the commissioner chair, the commission chair. Uh, but I'd like to hear from you about as you think about how what we saw in South Africa with their racial justice, truth and reconciliation commission, talk with us about sort of the international approach to dealing with issues of hate from an institutionalized approach to love. Well, I, I think the commission offers two opportunities. One is to pursue the path that you just mentioned and that Nelson Mandela uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, and others have promoted, which is that we cannot have freedom for anyone in society if we don't have a culture of love, mm. because no one can be free if others don't recognize and support your freedom. And mm. we see that now with COVID. Um, none of us can be free of illness and sickness, while some of us are sick with this highly communicable disease. Mm -hmm. None of us can be free of environmental catastrophe unless all of us protect each other and work together to change the environment across this world. Um, and none of us will actually be um, prosperous economically in the long run if all of us don't work together because the current course we're on just leads to greed and war which is unsustainable. And that is what the message has been from Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. That is our mission. Um, the other part of it, I would say, is um, we have been sold a, a 
sort of a false bill of goods when it comes to democracy, where you just elect people and then they'll take care of making sure government works to your best interest as a community of people. Mm. And that is not how democracy works. We, we're, we know that agencies don't work for us often. They don't think about us or plan for us. But what we haven't been able to do is actually to engage the community and say, here's what we want transportation policy to look like. Here's what we want policing policy to look like. Here's what we want housing policy to look like. And I think that's the next challenge for uh, black folks and people of color um, all across this country. Um, a trillion dollars is being spent by the federal government for infrastructure development across the country. Do we have systems in place across the country to make sure our young people get into those jobs and professions, mm -hmm. to make sure businesses of color are actually doing the work in communities? Um, do we have those systems in place? And to be honest, general, we do not. Wow. This is our work. We have to build those systems and make local government, hire our folks, contract with our folks so that we can close the racial wealth gap. That is the second challenge. Mm. And when we're thinking about the, the idea of a love ethic, I remember, you know, when I was younger thinking, oh, that's corny. And one of my critiques of <laughs> the, the Martin Luther King Jr. and his message, and this was a, a very ill-informed critique, I'll, I'll just own that. Uh, it was a youthful critique was, you know, we don't have love. You know, we need revolution. Obviously, I've never been in a revolution, right? Because <laughs> no one who's been involved in a revolution would say something like that. Right? <laughs> it's like, what, what do you mean? What is this love we're talking about? You know, how am I supposed to turn the other cheek and love my neighbor? And what is this? nonviolence. Do you see how violent these people are being? And yet we've had, you know, decades since we saw how this country responded to him to recognize that, quite frankly, if we don't do as you are suggesting and really tap into our better angels, our better selves, and use that bettering to guide our policy, then we end up replicating within our communities and within our society the problems that are already pre-existing. And yet the idea of institutionalize a loving policy-driven ethic seems very woo-woo-woo. Um, it seems very sort of out there, Deputy Mayor. It feels like, well, okay, you talk about love and good feelings. How are you going to quantify that? Who's funding this? How are you going to translate your good, positive feelings into actual policy? And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that this commission, uh, this New York City Racial Justice Commission, is attempting in some ways to do just that. Can, can you talk with us a bit about how this commission is structured so that, because I really want people to know that this isn't just something we're doing in New York City. This is something that should be getting replicated all across the country. But how, can you talk with us about how these bodies, these commissions that are seeking out a, a truth and reconciliation type model, how they can be used to ensure that we are creating and institutionalizing policies that really really are centered on a communal understanding of, of what our debt to each other actually is. Yes, sure. Um, Martin Luther King uh, reached out to George Wallace back in the 60s, and George Wallace was mm. an extremely racist uh, governor of Alabama um, who stood in the doors of the University of Alabama to make sure black kids couldn't go to that school. Mm. Um, and Martin Luther King nonetheless reached out to him and basically, he said, you know, um, we ought to be together, not fighting against one another, because your constituents are poor. I can see when, mm -hmm. from looking at them, they haven't been able to afford a dentist or see a dentist. I know a lot of them are sick. 
a lot of them are struggling just to get by day to day. And we ought to be on the same page on that. And Wallace rejected King's overture. But later on in life, he said rejecting King was the single biggest mistake he made in his life. Mm. Um, And what King meant by love was actually that we black folks have to take on the human responsibility of helping lead poor white folks to a better better life and to the beloved community, as he called it, because they've been abused and misused. And a lot of the purpose of race is actually not just to keep black folks down, it's equally to keep white folks down. Mm. And a few years ago, I spoke in Alabama to a whole bunch of uh, white workers and walked through with them Trump's budget. And I said, you know, 62% of the people in Alabama on Medicaid are white folks. It's you. Wow. Now, do you hate us black folks so much you want to kick your your grandmother out of a nursing home and not have your daughter see a dentist? Is that what you want? Because that's what's going on. Mm. And they said, will you please come back? No one tells us this. We don't hear this on Fox. Um, I said, you know, I got family obligations. They said, we'll fly your family back, too. (laughs) We need to have this conversation. These were poor white folks. And that is really the threat that our Racial Justice Commission and efforts like this or talk about revolutionary love, that's the real threat to this country Mm. because white folks are misled and abused. And part of our challenge is actually how do we actually not just think about ourselves but also think about what's better for everybody. Um, And that really is our agenda. Well, now, you know, Deputy Mayor, somebody I can already tell you is listening to this and they're thinking, well, too bad for them. Uh, There has to be a way for us to get what we need without thinking about how to convince them that they should see our humanity. And and I'll give you an example. We actually had a caller uh, a couple of weeks ago who called in to say that perhaps, uh, you know, we need to, as we're thinking about sort of the battles around critical race theory and we're thinking about, uh, you know, all these sort of culture wars that have taken off recently, uh, that perhaps we should think more about how to show love to their children and how to have more of a conversation about uh, teaching white people uh, how to be better white people for their children and friends. I'm sort of paraphrasing what she was saying, but I, I, I tried to understand what she was saying because I, I felt as though she was speaking in some ways about what it is that you're talking about right now. Not so much about do we love white people, but being able to tap into what we commonly share in terms of struggle and being able to tap into what we are commonly or what we hold in common in terms of our needs. So we all need dental care. We all need uh, retirement plans. We all need health care. We all need housing. We all need access to quality food. And and so uh, there's a resistance, I think, to the idea of having that type of conversation. One, because it sort of plays into the idea that we can only get white people to do what is right if it appeals to their interests, which sort of gets picks up on Derek Bell's theory of interest convergence. If we can convince white people it's in their interest to help black people, then they will help black people. But as soon as it's no longer in their interest, they will stop helping black people. What do you say to people who are concerned that that sort of ethic requires us to center whiteness too much in a way that perhaps they, they find not palatable? Well, my view is that in order to have a multiracial democracy, and that's the only kind of democracy we can have in America that's really a democracy, Mm. we're going to have to make room for white folks and black folks, Latinos, Asians, everybody to work together. And that means listening to everybody. Mm. Um, I worked 
for quite a while and still do with Reverend uh, Barber from North Carolina, a bunch of other preachers who created a Moral Monday movement in North Carolina. And they went to poor white sections of Western North Carolina clan country and said, come to this elementary school on a Thursday night or a Monday night, and we just want to hear what's going on with you. And those places were packed. And Mm. people talked about, you know, my kids on meth. There's no job. Even when you have a job, it pays minimum wage. We can't get anywhere or do anything. You know, our communities are dispirited. And Reverend Barber got up like what King did and said, you know, this is why we shouldn't be fighting each other. Let's go into why have we been killing each other for the last 150 years, Mm. always fighting each other? Whose interest is that? Why do we do that? And I'll tell you, there are two paths in America. We either learn how to live together or we're going to be in another civil war. Wow. And so I think those are the alternatives. We don't have the luxury of being able to say we're going to pursue our own agenda and not deal with white folks, not in this country, Mm. or not deal with Latinos, not in this country. And so we either come up with a methodology on how to work through these problems, or we're going to be shooting at each other, literally. And, you know, King, others came up with these methodologies, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier on. And we need to be big enough to lead this nation. Black folks have always understood this problem, our leaders historically, but if we don't leave, there's no other group in America, really, with our experience, our capacity for this kind of leadership. It certainly isn't coming from poor white folks or unions at the moment. Most mm. white folks are not in unions. Very few are. It's not coming from anywhere else. That's my view. Oh, yeah. So when we think about the the actual work that must be done, when when I think about a Reverend William Barber, and uh, he has been he, gracious enough to to be a guest on this show in the past, and he has said much like you uh, that quite frankly there really is no other choice. Now in the back of my mind, Deputy Mayor, I'm always thinking, well, one day we might be able to snap our fingers and disappear uh, and go to some other unoccupied land, so we wouldn't be colonizers, but we would be free. <laughs> I keep realizing that right. that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, and so here's where we're at. We're, we're kind of stuck with this beast of ours, uh, a beast not of our own making, but certainly one that, that infiltrates our, our very being in so many ways. When you think about the work of government, and, and how it is that government is going to have to show up differently. And I don't mean government in the terms of Democrat, Republican, or, you know, the tr- traditional political parties. I mean, brilliant people who love their communities, who, you know, like me, realize as much as they'd like to snap their fingers and disappear us all, can't really do that. People who are looking to uh, either elected officials, agency organizations, um, municipality leadership, whatever it is that they are looking to and however their communities are currently constituted. When we're thinking about the role of government at centering a love ethic in policy, government traditionally has not done a very good job of that, at least not of loving all of us. It it has loved white people very much. Well, wealthy white people, as you point out, not poor white people. Actually, you know what? Government is terrible at this, Deputy. (laughs) Even as I'm thinking of this question, government is done a terrible job at this. I feel like the work of these types of commissions where uh, people from across your cities, whether, you know, in New York City, we had everyone, I believe each of the five boroughs were represented, but these commissions, these bodies where people from all across the city 
or all across your local town are able to come together, you listen to the, the concerns of the community, you think you ask pointed questions about how issues of race have really disrupted their overall quality of life, and then you, you take the hearings, you take the, the information that you got from the experts, uh, you take all of the, the testimony, and we put it together in a report. In our report, we're going to now be uh, able to vote on these proposals that we've been able to put together. Uh, but at the end of the day, the idea is to come up with a body of recommendations that's really going to help that particular jurisdiction to grapple with its own legacy of inherent racism and, and, and inequity. As someone who was participating in this process as part of government, I was an advocate, so I'm a little bit on the outside of this fence, but you were someone who participated in this process as part of government. What would you say to other government actors who are thinking about replicating a racial justice commission in their city, who are thinking about how to sort of press the conversation forward about how to have more critical dialogue about issues of race and then create critical solutions to those issues? What would your advice be for other members of government who are thinking about racial justice commissions as a possible pathway forward? forward for their city to really grapple with its own legacy of race? Well, most cities, large and medium-sized cities in, in the United States are majority people of color right now. Mm. Um, and if you add young white folks who tend to vote progressive, 80% of urban young white folks voted twice for Obama. They, they wow. tend to vote progressive. If you add all that together, there's in cities across America the potential for very progressive political coalitions and very progressive policy change. Mm. Um, and so I see this commission, the Racial Justice Commission, as really just an expression of that possibility, mm. that we can actually come together and begin to develop at the local level. What does freedom, justice, and equality really look like? Right. How do we put it into practice? How do we make government a, a force for justice versus just a force for maintaining the status quo. How do we do that? Mm. And we're going to create models that actually work. And we're going to, you know, keep building them. And then at some point, we'll take on Washington, D.C., where right now the military-industrial complex is trying to cultivate a war with China, or at least, mm. you know, the, the edges of a war so they can sell more of their goods we're on the edge of nuclear confrontation with Russia. None of that stuff serves our community, mm. but it benefits the war industry. Right. Um, we're not tackling the new billionaires, you know, in Silicon Valley. Jeff Bezos just bought a half billion dollar yacht, but we don't even charge them for selling our data to other companies whenever we use the Internet because we haven't been on top of policy. Mm. So we're not inequality is getting worse every day. And Washington, D.C. has 28,000 lobbyists, billions of dollars lobbying Congress all the time. That's not going to be where change and new ideas emanate from. It's going to come from cities, and mm -hmm. it's going to come from our communities, our folks really being engaged in these issues. So that's what I see as the uh, mission and the potential for what we're doing, but it's great potential. Mm -hmm. This is a rising tide that's happening in cities. Pretty soon all of America is going to look like New York City and other major cities demographically. So the question is, how do we work together? How do we develop models for what we want to see in government? Because we will have the power, which is wow. exactly why Trump and others are trying to deny us the right to vote, because they mm. see what's coming. Mm. 
Deputy Mayor, you've given me a little bit of hope. I got to be honest with you, <laughs> because the reality is when you lay it out like that, that in a few years, most cities are going to look like New York City. Uh, there is, quite frankly, an enormous amount of potential right now for cross-community collaboration and coalition building. And, you know, I didn't realize that there were 28,000 lobbyists in D.C., but it, that seems right, uh, give or take a couple thousand. Uh, but the reality is that change is going to have to come from those people who are in our communities who are closest to these issues and who frankly have solutions that don't often get listened to but definitely should be centered uh, far more than they absolutely are or than they currently are. Uh, Deputy Mayor, it's a, always a pleasure to speak with you and I'm, I'm so grateful that we have people like you who understand what it is to not just have a legislative policy but to have a love ethic driven approach to engaging in legislation and community change. Um, that's the work that we are seeing reflected in the commission and that's certainly the work that we hope to see in, in other commissions that will take off uh, as a result of the work that we're doing here in New York City. Thank you so much for being here with us today and for, for sharing all of that. Well, thank you for having me. And now is our time. Now is not a time for us to be dispirited. Mm. When the enemy attacks us, it means we're actually getting somewhere. Mm. So we should not be distracted or lose our focus right now. This see? is our time. And thank that you. That's why you're one of my favorites. Deputy Mayor Phil Thompson, uh, City of New York, racial justice commissioner, uh, and quite frankly, someone who gives me a lot of hope.